Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. We're gluttons for punishment. We're back to talk about head covering and hair lengths from 1 Corinthians 11, answering some of your objections and questions. I think, Ken, that our last episode was perhaps, uh, after the Justin Peters episode interview, the most 24-hour and 48-hour mm. downloads and plays that we've had. And certainly so, the most responded to. Yeah. From so. from both perspectives, people <laughs> saying thank you and people saying, well, what about mm-hmm. X, mm-hmm. Y, Z? Well, here we are to say, what about? We're going to tell you the what about your questions. And this could lead to some more questions, <laughs> but we're going to do our best to give you some answers. After the music. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Well, we are recording this earlier than normal. Definitely for me, two hours behind Ken. Uh, I have, yeah, but but it's also the the morning that we do our men's Bible study, and so I'm a little more awake than I would be at this time on a normal day. Yet it's still early, and we're up against a time crunch, so we just need to get started and leave out all that banter that people love. <laughs> yeah, <all of> yeah. <laughs> our, our witty banter, because <laughs> yeah. that's what you come to do theology for, anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. So. Let's just jump right into it. The first objection that we want to respond to is from a listener who wants to know why we don't believe the head covering talked about in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 11 is the woman's hair. Because if you drop down to verses 14 and 15, it says that a woman's hair is given to her as a covering. Now, we did touch on this in the first episode a little bit, but let's spend... A little more time on that and discuss why we take the view that the hair for a woman is not her covering. Ken, you want to get us started on that? Yeah, so I'm just kind of going to reiterate some of the things that we said in the first uh, episode about this, about how if you take that approach and if you insert that interpretation back into the text at earlier points, it really confuses the argument and really, I believe, makes Paul's argument pretty nonsensical. Uh, So again, that was based off the reasoning in verse 15, which states her hair is given to her as a covering. But if you take this back into verses 4 and 6, where it says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman or every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, It is the same as if her head were shaven. If you insert the argument that the hair is the covering, that really confuses 
what in the world Paul could be meaning in that text. Every every woman who prays or prophesies with her hair cut short should then also cut her hair short. Like that doesn't make sense. Like it's it's yeah. the same thing. Any woman who doesn't embrace the long hair that God has given her should go ahead and not embrace the long hair that God has given her. That's what that verse would end up saying. And yeah. it sounds like you're reading from the ESV because it says wife instead yes. of woman. Well. I noticed that, that we had to make that adjustment last time around. <laughs> I'll switch uh, over to the NASB. Yeah. Yeah, so it does make the earlier portions of the instruction nonsensical. And it's same for a man. If a man prays with hair on his head, then he is shaming Christ. He's dishonoring Christ. Well, um, what do you make of that? What do you do with that, right? Right. That's something that you have to address. Now, it is important to look at verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 11 because it does say her hair is given to her as a covering. Now, what is interesting is these are different Greek words. So the, the Greek word for covering that's used in verse 15 is different from the action of covering and uncovering, uh, the word that's used there in verses 4 and 6. It's a different Greek word. It's also in a different context. When it's in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul is talking about the setting of corporate worship. Men and women, and I think the ESV is right in their interpretation. I just wish they didn't put it in the translation. But I think it's talking about specifically husbands and wives in the corporate worship setting. Now, when you go to verses 14, 15, he's making an argument from nature as a principle then that indicates what is appropriate for the church. Doesn't nature itself teach you? This is what Paul is talking about in those verses. He's talking about nature itself teaching us something. And when he says that for the woman, her hair is given to her as a covering, he's of course implying... Uh, quite directly, that God is the one giving her her hair. God has given it to her. So his intention, God's intention, with giving her this hair is that she be naturally covered with hair that wears longer than men's hair. That's what Paul is saying in those verses. And this natural, or in other words, the way it should be kind of sign, is an indication or a prompt for the additional covering to be employed in corporate worship settings. That's how the passage reads, that's Paul's argument in the passage, and to say, well, the hair is the covering of those earlier verses really does damage to what those earlier verses are communicating. Yeah, it, it, uh, to me, the whole, the whole passage, the whole argument kind of breaks down. It, uh, it, it, it really confuses what is Paul actually trying to teach and communicate. Mm-hmm. So... All right, so that's that one. We spent a couple more minutes on it, so you who wanted to know more about that, you know who you are. If, if there's something we left out, go ahead and bring it up, point it out. Objection number two. We got a really long YouTube comment. Yeah. <laughs> a really long YouTube comment with his own translation of the passage. This person inserted his interpretation of what was going on into his own rendering of the passage, Mm-hmm. What was that all about, Ken? I, that, that was that was strange. Yeah, so essentially he's making the argument that this is a text about uh, misgendering yourself, you know, cross-dressing and things that we shouldn't do that, and that this text is about uh, wearing essentially sexually promiscuous clothing, uh, provocative now, clothing. If, if we were just to stop right there, 
if we, if someone was to say, that's what this text is about, this is how you need to think, listener. Someone says, this is about misgendering yourself. Well, what are you assuming? You're assuming that there were cultural, absolute cultural standards in and around Corinth, and even broader than that, because Paul said, brings in the other churches with mm-hmm. this custom, you're assuming that there is a monolithic presentation of how men and women dressed in the culture that indicated someone was a man or someone was a woman. Because if someone, if a man by covering his head is misgendering himself, that means that everyone would agree with that. Well, you have to provide the historical proof that that was the case. And right. I'm telling you, it's not there. You can try but it's not there. And if you're going to say this is about not being sexually promiscuous, a woman uncovering her head, that was sexually promiscuous. Well, you got to prove that that was the case in that culture. And again, you're not going to be able to do it uh, in any kind of airtight, solid fashion, or even a, a strong fashion. You will find a lot of arguments or a lot of examples, I should say, in history on both sides. Well, I, I even want to... Uh rewind a step a little bit there about how, okay, so so his, his argument is that it's it, it's about misgendering yourself and about uh, wearing sexually provocative clothing. And the, the argument that he gives in the YouTube comment um, is, is a little bit confusing to me because, uh, and I don't actually, I don't know personally who this individual is, uh, Raider Gamer, um, love to chat a little bit more sometime, but the, the issue... He provides this uh, this comment about how okay, there's evidence that prostitutes didn't shave their heads, but the evidence that prostitutes did shave their heads and men representing themselves as females in homosexual activity makes the passage make sense. And that, to me, is the biggest issue. He's conceding that there is evidence to the contrary of his p- position, and uh, that he needs this a- additional information outside of scripture to make the passage make sense. He's approaching the passage as if the passage cannot make sense on its own, mm-hmm. thereby, I think, even calling into question the, uh, the uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? Just the, not maybe not the authority of scripture, but the sufficiency. Of, yeah, the, the sufficiency and the clarity of scripture. I, I, uh, whoever you are, Mr. Commenter, uh, <laughs> I just caution you against uh, to really be careful with this line of reasoning. That you are, by insisting that there needs to be outside information from extra-biblical sources to be brought in to make this passage make sense, that is a dangerous road to walk down. And and, and I'll also add, anytime someone says, oh, there's evidence that you know the prostitutes shaved their heads, all you got to do is say, oh, can you provide me with that? Can you cite me your source on that? Can you and, provide me with that example from history? And even if they do... There's also evidence which he concedes right. to the contrary. But 99% of the time, they just heard someone else say it, and they yeah. have no idea what it is. I mean, that's they heard someone else say it, who only heard someone else say it, who only heard someone else say it, and there's actually no real event in history that they're citing. They're just citing what they heard someone else say. And, and I also want to caution you, uh, Raider Gamer, about, okay, you, you cited that there is evidence to the contrary of your position— and yet you're embracing this position because it makes the passage make sense to you. I, I want you to caution you against that, to ignore evidence because you want the passage to make sense to you, I think is a dangerous road to go down as well. It, so. if, if, I, if I interpret it this way, it fits my preconceived notion, so that I'm more comfortable with that. <laughs> That's essentially what's being said. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be trite about it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it is what it is. Yeah. 
So that is that. Um, yeah. If you want to read his comment, go to our YouTube video of the first episode and you can check that out. But it, it does open up the door to, okay, well, what about other cultural symbol type things? Like, for example, uh, who is it? D- Daniel Wallace makes the argument that today we have the wedding ring. Mm. Uh, so th- then they had head coverings. Today we have the wedding ring. Or uh, you said Wayne Grudem, right, talks about women wearing nice dresses. Yeah. So wh- Be why can't. So let's maintain the symbols, but let's just swap out depending on what our culture recognizes as something that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Let's just put use whatever symbol we want to. There are several problems with this. Um, and all you can really do is address the specific solutions. I mean, we, we can't just give a blanket statement because each symbol that someone might propose, each specific symbol that someone might propose has its own unique issues. So like the wedding ring comment, well, today we have wedding rings. Men and women wear wedding rings to show they're committed to one another. Mm-hmm. Well, here are, several, here are two huge issues. Number one, the passage says that men aren't to do something and women are to do something. So if you're going to obey this passage, women should wear wedding rings and men should not. That's so both wearing wedding rings goes against the instruction of the passage. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, it's something that you wear all the time. This wedding ring in the passage, it's just about the corporate worship setting. It's while praying and prophesying. It says we don't just put our wedding rings on while praying and prophesying. So there's another issue with that. Um, those two initial issues are just the tip of the iceberg yeah. with with that whole proposal i would i would add another no pun intended yeah <laughs> i would add another problem with that is that the wedding ring doesn't communicate anything about headship and submission that that's what i was going to bring up about the dress um mm. it's not on her head there's a reason why paul talked about in verse three that the man is the head of a woman and god is the head of christ therefore if a man prays with something on his head he dishonors his head, Christ. He shames Christ, his head. Mm-hmm. And if a woman prays uncovered, she dishonors her head, the man, or the husband, if that's the way you want to interpret that. The dress doesn't have anything to do with the head. The symbol is directly connected to headship. Um, there's there's a, a direct connection between the symbol and what it signifies. Uh, and if we're going to say nice dresses, I mean, we could say all kinds of things. Brushing your teeth. Brush, uh, making your teeth look nice. That's, I mean, like, why why not? You know, you can just throw in whatever you want at that point. Women should brush their teeth, but men should not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so we know we can't, uh, we can't um, just change out the symbol to whatever we want it to be. The symbol actually communicates something specific. So uh, that is, that is something that creates all kinds of problems. Um. How much do you want to say about uh, R.C. Sproul has got, there's a little uh, YouTube video out there, a little clip about him addressing how we understand uh, what is what is a timeless normative principle and what is merely a custom and how yeah, we wrestle we can through link that. To that in the, we can yes. link to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And, and he was specifically talking about this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, as he yep. was talking about it. Uh, R.C. Sproul believed in the continuing significance of the instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. So let's just play a, a clip from that R.C. Sproul video to give the listeners a taste of what he presents there. 
Now, obviously, you admit at the first that there are certain things that are customs. You know, when Jesus tells the people on the Galata and sends out the uh, 70 uh, throughout the villages of Israel, you know, not to wear shoes, this is not a universal mandate, cross-cultural mandate for shoeless evangelism in every generation, obviously. There are certain things that are clearly customs tied to the culture of the time. And there are other things that are clearly principial, that transcend time. But what you have to do, there are times when it's not immediately apparent to determine what is principle and what is custom. And I say this principle is the burden of proof is always on the one who says it's custom rather than principle. Because the principle applies that if I'm going to err, I'd rather err on the side of being over-scrupulous of treating something that was a local custom as if it were a, a transcendent principle, rather than ever being guilty of taking a transcultural principle of Almighty God and reducing it to a first-century custom. And, uh, you, you know, you take that business about the, the covering, the head covering. I use that as the illustration in there. And I'm a voice... Uh, crying in the wilderness because if you go and get 10 commentaries on 1 Corinthians, you'll find 10 commentaries, commentators that will quick the point out that in Corinth, which was a seaport city, a sin city, the sailors coming there, a big red light district, and that the sign of the prostitute was the uh, uncovered head. And so Paul obviously uh, gave this mandate to, to the Corinthian community for the women to keep their heads covered so as not to scandalize uh, the community. And there is a case where this New Testament scholar studies the Zipsen Laban, the life situation in which the letter was written, and says, aha, this must be why Paul told the women to cover their hair. And I said, now there's an exegetical principle here. And the principle I would like to suggest to biblical scholars is that when the Apostle Paul gives a reason for instructions that he uh, imposes upon the church, you never, 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 never substitute a different one. And Paul, in this case, doesn't say to the Corinthian community, have the ladies cover their heads because the prostitutes are walking around with their bare head. And in fact, he appeals to creation. And if anything transcends local customs and boundaries, it's creation ordinances. All right, so in light of that now, what, what do we say when someone brings up, well, the holy kiss? Is, wasn't that a cultural custom? We don't practice the holy kiss anymore. I imagine most of us don't as a, an ordinance in the church or a specific practice to be maintained. It's not a principle. We see that as a custom, right? Uh, and, it's, and it's true that there are many commentators out there that make a direct connection from head covering and hair links to the, the holy kiss. Tom Schreiner does it. John MacArthur does it. And uh, I think that's erroneous, okay? There are three reasons why I think that's a bad thing to do. First... The reasoning behind holy kissing is quite different from the instructions regarding head covering and hair links. Holy kissing is mentioned five times in the New Testament. Uh, Peter calls it a kiss of love, not a holy kiss. But each of the five occurrences of the term is brief, and there's no 
reasoning offered, like there is in 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul builds an argument for this practice. There's nothing like that that accompanies a holy kiss in the New Testament. It's just mentioned basically in passing, usually at the close of a letter. If the practice was reasoned to in the same way that head covering and hair lengths is reasoned to, then it would be quite sensible to consider maintaining the practice across different cultures. Second thing, holy kissing was a greeting, not a corporate worship practice, not like an ordinance in the church, but a a greeting. All five times the kiss appears in the New Testament, it's coupled with the word greet. (laughs) Okay, that's important to know. 100% of the time, it's coupled with the word greet. It's a greeting. Christians were commanded to greet one another with an attitude of love. It was not an aspect of their worship that happened only in the assembly. Thirdly, and finally, the holy kiss was an expression of acceptance in the Christian family from individual to individual. When you get to considering head covering and hair lengths, that's a custom, that's a principle that continues on in the church that is a testimony of divine truth in the church to the whole body of believers, not an affirmation of individual to individual. And, and head covering and hair length is also a testimony to angels. Um, the, the greeting of the holy kiss doesn't appear to be that. It seems to be a form of interpersonal encouragement. So really, I mean, it, it comes back to, well, what's the context, right? We, that's something that is always... Uh, should be driven home every single time we're trying to address a passage is what's the context of this of this text and when you consider the context and you just consider how those instructions are given and the arguments for them we find a very different kind of context between mm-hmm. the two commands and we would say the same is true if, if people, you know, bring up the issue of foot washing in the midst of that as well. Oh, okay, why, if we're going to hold on to head coverings, mm-hmm. why would we not insist upon the practice of, of foot washing? And, and I would say this is a much more legitimate argument than the holy kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, when you look at Jesus washing the disciples' feet and what he said to them, it's like, whoa, you go back and read that afresh and you're thinking, have we been messing up by not doing this? Yeah, and there are, so, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, he, he says in the passage, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Yeah. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Yeah, so how, how do we understand that and, and come away as, oh, well, it's actually literally washing each other's feet. That's an optional thing. And there are some churches that actually insist upon this, right? The the Brethren Movement, uh, They this is a practice that they hold to. Why would that not be something we would say is necessary for believers today to observe? Well, a lot of it comes back to this, the word for example in the text that Jesus used, hypodegma, means model or something to be imitated. And we see another context of how that word is used, and it, it, it gives the idea of, of a category of things, of the same sort of acts, the same kind of obedience, with not necessarily meaning the exact same uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a rigid replication yes. of the same event. Yes, right. So it, it, it comes to the issue of, of categories, the same kind, the same sort, rather than an exact representation, exact uh, duplication. Uh, so that's kind of the idea of, of what that word communicates of example. Jesus gives us an example of something that we should do, that we should uh, follow in that he was showing us how we are to sacrificially love and serve others. Right, that, that's that's what Jesus was communicating, and that is something that we should do following after the example that Jesus Christ gave us. 
Yeah, two other points on that. Um, one, in that John 13 passage, there's no transcendent basis for practicing foot washing in the churches. Mm. Uh, you you have trans, a transcendent basis <laughs> uh, in the head covering and hair lengths section. Uh, he appeals to nature. He appeals to the creative order. He appeals to angels. You don't have that with foot washing. Uh, it's a the foot washing demonstration was a demonstration of Christ's love in the old covenant. The new covenant had not yet begun, had not been not yet been initiated, and that's just an important thing to note on the on the timeline there. But also, and I think this one is just really critical in First Timothy five when describing a true widow. Paul says that a widow qualifies as a true widow if she has shown hospitality to strangers and if she has washed the saints' feet Hmm. and if she has assisted those in distress. He's using washing the saints' feet there metaphorically, talking about how she has loved others, if she's loved and served others well, showing hospitality and assisting people. Sandwiched between those two ideas, hospitality and assisting, is washing the saints' feet. So this metaphorical use by the early church indicates that Jesus' instructions about showing sacrificial love had many different expressions, all right? So um, it's it's important to to note these things. In fact, in that original thir- uh, John 13 passage, Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus' emphasis in the foot-washing demonstration was to show love, and it was that principle that was meant to rigidly carry on, as opposed to the practice itself. Okay. Yeah, so it, it, the, we find that the two things are different. They're presented differently, they're described differently, and the context helps reveal that to us for why we would view these to what would seem to be analogous arguments or two analogous things, why they're different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, one more, let's move on to another thing that people bring up. This was a, a hang up for you. This yes. was, this was probably the final straw for you. You were holding on to, well, what about the Nazarite vow? Yeah. Men had long hair with the Nazarite vow. So do you want to present that issue and yeah. the solution? So I mentioned in the last episode about how I wrote a research paper while I was in uh, seminary a couple of years ago. This was in uh, fall of 2018. I wrote this uh, four, back four years ago. Uh, wow, that, that seems crazy. That was that long ago? <laughs> no, that's not right. 2019. Three and a half. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, two and a half. Okay. Um, we're, we're talking like old people, right? About, uh, arguing about times and dates. <laughs> uh, so, when I was studying this, this uh, I was it was a research paper for school. Our head coverings for today, and really wrestling with this. Read so many commentaries that argued in circles, and this was the, actually the one thing that was really a hang up for me in terms of, well. Again, you mentioned this was kind of the last thing to overcome for me to embrace uh, that uh, that head coverings are normative for today. The argument is that, first of all, there's a quotation from Robert McQuilkin, who has a, a book about trying to understand and apply the Bible. And I thought it was a very helpful quote where he writes, and I still think this is very helpful. All scripture should be received as normative for every person in all societies of all time, unless the Bible itself limits the audience. That limitation may take place in the immediate context or in other parts of Scripture. And I think that is still a good and helpful principle. 
But what I did is I took that and I said, well, okay, well, we have examples in scripture of the Nazarite vow, which comes from uh, Numbers chapter 6, where a man enters into a Nazarite vow, he's not allowed to cut his hair, but rather let it grow long. And there's other requirements in that context as well about food he is or isn't allowed to drink, not being able to touch a dead body, etc. And the reality that Paul himself was under some form of vow that we presume to be a Nazarite vow, because in Acts 18.18, 18, uh, Paul is described as cutting his own hair after finishing the terms of a vow he had made. So I took that to mean, okay, well, then Scripture is limiting the uh, the application of this command to a specific audience, because in other contexts, there are seemingly to be exceptions that are made to the instruction that Paul is giving in 1 Corinthians 11. So sometimes this might be a passage that, two passages that people would appeal to. Well, this is cultural, or it's not necessarily normative for today because, well, look, there's a Nazarite, there's Paul. How do we make sense of these? So if you just made a, if you were to give a nutshell answer to how you reconcile this in your mind. Sure. Um, number one, the Nazarite vow was clearly, uh, something that was not normative for the people, right? This, this was a, an exception. This was something that made someone appear and behave very unnaturally. If you were under a Nazarite vow, it was very evident and it was very obvious because you would stick out like a sore thumb within the culture. So to argue that something that is it by design intended to be unnatural to argue that that is permission for us to, for, for men to grow out long hair or for, uh, for, for us to ignore head coverings. To me, that that is not logic that can hold through. Uh, this is clearly a, an exception that is intended to show the unnaturalness of the situation, to show that this individual is set apart unto God, that they are, that they are separate. There's something distinct and special going on here. And that this is not something that is, that everyone can feel free to just do willy-nilly is the technical term for that. Uh, so, there's, so there's that issue. Um, secondly, um, I lost my train of thought for a second. Well, we, we could go to <laughs> we could go to the example of Paul, right? You bring up Paul. Um, why was Paul under a vow? Well, we don't know. Well, I mean, let's just be honest. It doesn't say. The text doesn't say. Now, there are indications where we see that even Christians in the early church who came out of Judaism still practice some of those same customs that they practice in Judaism. Uh, For example, in Acts 21, James says, hey, there are some believers in the church here who, of course, this is Jerusalem, uh, they uh, are pretty fired up about Jewish things, and if they hear that you're around, they think you're the anti-Moses guy. So they're going to get pretty upset. And they're under a vow. There are four men under a vow. And so James is telling Paul to kind of go along with them and win them over, win their fellowship over. We also see in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. He would do certain activities, not from a personal worship perspective necessarily, but for the sake of winning other people evangelistically or winning their fellowship if they were brothers in Christ. So, to say, well, Paul went under a vow so he could have a ponytail is just really, really stupid. And you shouldn't make that argument. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and I remembered what I was going to say uh, when I lost my train of thought. Uh, most people who argue that this is a cultural thing point to that 
the the appearances that Paul was saying you shouldn't do or you should do indicated sexual availability. It, it was similar to like the temple prostitutes, and so women uh, should not, women should cover their heads and they should have long hair because they don't want to look like the temple prostitutes. Uh, the men need to look masculine as well because they don't want to look like uh, the, the homosexual temple prostitutes or whatever. If there is an exception that allows you, like, okay, don't look like the temple prostitute, except for when you're under a Nazarite vow, then it's okay. Um, Those are like competing <laughs> ideals. Yeah. It's like, it's like yeah, you, sh- you should be able to grow your hair out because it's a special vow to God. But you also shouldn't grow your hair out, Paul says, because then you'll look like a temple prostitute. Well, which one is it? It can't be both of yes, those, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, it's important that you understand the argument that you're making, if that's the road you want to go down. And I, I'd also appeal, I, I want to appeal to the complementarians who are listening, which is probably almost all of our audience, uh, 99 plus percent of our audience. What do you say when someone says, women should be able to be pastors because look at Deborah in Israel in the Old Testament. She was a leader in Israel. Therefore, women should be able to be pastors. Think about the argument you would make against that. And now just apply those exact same principles to someone making the Nazarite vow argument. Okay? Yeah. Uh, it's exceptional. It's not normative. It's exceptional, not normative. There we go. Next okay. thing? Yeah, we got we to gotta keep rolling through. We're going to run out of time. Um, oh, oh, yeah, real quick. I, I want to do this one real quick. Well, what about someone who says, well, this is only one passage in the New Testament, the head covering and hair links section. It's only one passage. This is something I used to say. <laughs> well, it's only one passage. So so what, right? Uh, in fact, Milton Vincent says, how many times does God have to tell his children something before they listen? Uh, you, you think about if you have kids, how many times do you have to tell your children before they're expected to obey? Ugh. But if you go even more logically with all this, Think of the other one-passage doctrines that we have in the New Testament. The Trinitarian baptism formula that's found in the Great Commission, just one. The length of the Messianic kingdom being a thousand years. Now, we're not getting into an eschatology debate, but just the idea of the millennium, one passage, one passage. Qualifications for deacons, one passage. What makes a, a widow a true widow? The seriousness of idleness in the church. Husbands having their prayers being hindered because they're not living with their wives in an understanding way. How to handle accusations against elders, believers who might take each other to court and sue each other. Abandonment being the grounds for divorce, 1 Corinthians 7. Certain angels being elect, the elect angels, as opposed to those who followed Satan. Jesus' high priestly prayer, instructions about communion in 1 Corinthians 11. Instructions about communion for the church, the office of evangelist, and some more. We only have one passage. Are we going to say that we don't take any of those seriously because there's only one passage, so we can just write them all off? I don't think so. Yeah. First Corinthians 11 goes from head covering and hair length, the only passage in the New Testament that talks about that, to talking about instructions for communion in the church, the only passage that talks about that. So you're going to write off the whole chapter? Go ahead and write off the communion section, too. Uh, and then there's a list of two passage doctrines too, but we won't get into those. One or two passages is enough. You don't need more than that. Yes, especially when it's argued 
I mean, I, I don't even need the especially on there. One passage is enough. But when it is argued so much more uh, fully with all these argumentations uh, yes. from nature and all that, foolish to dismiss it. Yes. Well, someone asked about verse 16. You want to yes. address that? Uh, so we had someone um, ask, uh, like to hear more about our how we would uh, address the issue of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16, which reads, again, this is the New American Standard 95, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And then there's a, NESB has a footnote on the word other, literally such, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. And so some argue that Paul is actually saying, well, if anyone is inclined to be contentious about this issue of head covering, Actually, we don't even practice head coverings. We have no such practice. We don't do it this way, nor have the churches of God. I mean, it is a laughable position to hold. <laughs> I, I, I do know that it can read that way at first blush, and there are there are some solid teachers who actually hold on to that view of that verse. But that is a laughable position. Uh, I just want to read a portion of the commentary from Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner does not agree with us on the application for today on this issue. But listen to what he says about the no such practice phrase. He says, quote, Now some have said that Paul actually rejects the wearing of head coverings by women with these words because the Greek literally says, we have no such practice. And thus they conclude that the practice of wearing head coverings is renounced here by Paul. But such an understanding is surely wrong. Paul in this verse is, is addressing the contentious, who, the previous context makes clear, do not want to wear a head covering. The practice of certain Corinthian women who refuse to wear a head covering is that is what Paul refers to when he says, we have no such practice. Thus he says to the contentious that both the apostolic circle, we, and the rest of the churches adhere to the custom of head coverings. So if, if someone wants to abandon the head covering, Paul is saying, we have no such practice of mm-hmm. abandoning the head covering. Okay, And when he says we, he's talking about the apostolic church, uh, the apostolic circle, Schreiner says, but he's also incorporating the rest of the churches. Right. And he knew about a few churches in a few different locations, didn't he? Yeah, he might have might have started a few here and there, you yeah. know, in a couple of different cultures and regions and such. Anyway, so to, to argue that that verse actually undermines Paul's entire argument is, uh, I believe, is, is foolish just on the face of it. Then you, when you start digging into it a little bit more, uh, it, it, it shows itself to be fallacious as well. Uh, Someone wrote in and asked about the objection to women wearing full-time. There are some uh, church groups that do practice this full-time. We think of the Mennonites. They wear it full-time. There's many, um, you know, very uh, conservative church groups that you would see, um, you know, women wearing long skirts and head coverings, and it's like that pretty much 24-7. Why would we not say that this is something to observe 24-7? That's something we said last week, or last yeah. uh, last episode that hey we're this isn't what we're arguing for why not here's some quick hit r- responses to that number one Paul does not present the head covering that women are to wear as a uniform again it's uh, an action it's a a sign that is to be employed while praying and prophesying mm. so there's a limitation. And he, he says this multiple times while praying and prophesying. There's a limitation to when this rule is in effect. The action of covering and uncovering is key. The, the, the putting on the symbol 
or taking off the symbol is key. Uh, not just the fact that it's there or not there, but I think the action and being intentional, that's key. If, if it was a 24-7 argument that this is a uniform, that would mean men are never allowed to wear hats, mm-hmm. which would mean Ken's head would constantly be sunburned. True. <laughs> so, um, again, when you, when you keep the symmetry that Paul presents uh, or the, the mirroring that Paul presents in the text, that um, just as women uncover, or just as women cover, men are to be uncovered, and then you say, well, what about 24-7? Well, that means men would never be allowed to have anything on their heads ever, and that's not what Paul is saying. The text specifically says this is during prayer and prophesying, praying and prophesying. So that's uh, critical to understanding the the whole point. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I think this last this next one is going to be it, it is difficult. I think to to wrestle through. Someone asked a question about what do you do if you have a conviction about this issue, but someone in authority over you disagrees how do you handle that uh, the the first place we need to start is at home so you could be in a uh, situation where you're a father or you're a daughter Uh, that's probably the most likely where this is going to come up Um, and you've got an authority relationship there or there's also of course the husband wife relationship so let's walk through the women's perspective first in both of those scenarios the Father-daughter perspective. Say you're a young woman who's not married, who believes you should cover, and that would be a different view than me, probably a different view than Ken, I think, at this point. Yeah. But, but maybe that's your conviction. You believe that you should cover, and your dad says no. What's your advice to that young woman, Ken? Well, the whole issue is, in this text, is presented as an issue of authority and submission, and so it would be quite the ironic twist of fates where... In my attempt to show submission to my father, or this really, I think, applies to the husband-wife relationship as well, to my father or to my husband, uh, would actually be a statement of rebellion against the wishes of said father or husband. I'm going to show my submission to my authority by rebelling against him. Yeah. It's a tough situation to be in. Yeah. And it, you, would, you would say that's the same for husband and wife, then? Uh, I would think a, so, yeah. If, if the if, wife's if a conviction... woman has that conviction, but the, man, the husband says, don't. I don't want you doing this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard because, you know, how, how strong is, is the, the woman's uh, conviction on this to where if she believes that she, if she's not doing it, she is in sin against mm-hmm. God, that's where things get so mm-hmm. much more difficult and I would hope that if she were to reason with her husband that way, that he would understand, like, oh, you think you're in sin by not doing this. I would hope he would be gracious enough to say, well, it's not my preference, but I don't want to violate your conscience. Mm-hmm. But if he is insistent upon that, hmm. again, the point of the text is not just to have something on your head because you're supposed to have something on your head. The point of the text is to symbolize submission to the husband. So, based on the purpose of that of the action that is supposed to be at play here i don't know i th- i think it might be wise to maybe continue to to reason with your husband as as far as you can but hmm. 
show the submission that the text is is actually driving us towards anyway. Let me come at that one from a little bit of a different angle, but still talking about within the home. What do you say to the young man who likes to wear a ball cap to a church meeting and his dad says, take that thing off? And he's saying, look, I don't have a conviction about this. What what advice do you give him? Hey, that was me. Oh. Yeah, I I... I used to really bristle when people would tell me, don't wear your ball caps in church. Even when I wasn't there for a church function, I would step through the doors and I would have individuals literally physically remove the hat off of my head. And, <laughs> oh man, I got so mad about that. It, it would make me so angry. And it would actually, this is again, revealing my own, <laughs> my own flesh, my own sinful heart. I would, I would rebel against that just for the sake of, well, no, it's, I am the church, and I would slap that hat back on real nice and hard and, and things like that. So, yeah, that's—I've been in this position, um, and I know, I know how I reacted sinfully by not, not saying, well, it's not my conviction. I, I acted with a rebellious heart. Uh, well, let, let's start if it's your dad telling you. If you're living at home, your father says— son, take that off. Mm-hmm. You take it off. Yes. He's right. your father. Yes. My responsibility is to be obedient to my father. It's not, it's not sinful to take it off. I take mm-hmm. it off. Now, where it gets a little more complicated is what if it's just other people in the church or even church leadership and you have a disagreement with them? Mm-hmm. Now what? I think a similar thing would apply. It's not. It's not inherently sinful to take your hat off in church. Like it, it wasn't that. It was just. Uh, and I don't think anybody who says, "Well, I don't have that conviction," would argue that I must keep my hat on inside the church building. Like I don't think anybody has that uh, has that level of conviction. So I think it is still good and right and proper to submit to the leadership of the church. And I, and I should clarify, my dad never. Uh, forcefully removed the hat off my head. It was always other individuals. It was it was actually never my dad. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's just kind of an aside, I guess. But the, Mr. Chip Chase is in the clear. Yes. <laughs> but other individuals who did have an issue would approach me and either remove it or to ask me to remove it. And I always did so, often with a grudging heart and a rebellious spirit within my own heart. But my responsibility, I think, in that moment, this is the leadership of the church. This is a principle that they think is good and proper. Uh, I should submit to them in that moment and remove it from my head. Now, what about uh, now moving and out of the home? I should say, oh, too, ahead. we ought to be able to have the freedom to have that conversation with our leaders as well and say, okay, I understand why yes. you're asking me to do this. Yes. But let's reason this from the scriptures here. Yes. And have that conversation. And if, if that conversation can't happen... There's there's a problem between the relationship between the authority figures within the church and the individual that's having an issue. That conversation needs to be able to be free and open. Yes. So and, and that yeah that principle carries through now as we think outside the home and do think just in the local church. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Say um, you recently have developed a conviction that women should cover and men should uncover in the corporate worship setting, and Mister Praise Band guy gets up there and. He's got a ponytail. He's got long flowing hair. Several men in the he's congregation. Cap. Yeah, yeah. So, well, and I've noticed a lot lately um, in just video that I've seen, because I don't visit other churches because I'm a pastor, right? I, I can't because I'm busy. Uh, but I've noticed in videos that I've seen, there are a lot of men wearing ball caps in corporate worship settings now. 
uh, that is a sign of something. But what do you do as just a, a lay, lay person, you're a congregant, and you're going, and you have this new conviction based on Scripture, and church leadership seems just to not care about, okay, worship guy's got his ponytail and a bunch of people around you are wearing ball caps or you know, a bunch of women who aren't covering, no big deal. How do you go about that? It's a difficult situation to be in for sure. I mean, on one hand, at the very, very minimum, you can lead by example, right? If, if this is a conviction that you have and, um, you know, for the woman, she can wear the head covering. For the, for the man, he always makes sure he's taking his hat off when he enters into the church building. Uh, I think conversations ought to be approached, but with gentleness and with grace. Like, we shouldn't be coming at militant. Uh, the individuals that, that came towards me to remove my hat uh, came quite aggressively at times, and I never appreciated that. Get that hat off, you know, type of thing. It's like, whoa. <laughs> hmm. uh, now, maybe we, we should approach that much more graciously and gently and say, hey, you know, um, you're wearing this hat. Uh, I believe actually Scripture shows us right here in this text that that we should not be doing this, and, and uh, reason from the Scriptures with those individuals and do that in the context of love and grace— uh, but those conversations really ought to be happening. You, you should be able to approach your leadership and say, hey, you know, I'm noticing these things, but this is what the, this text says. Mm-hmm. The challenge is going to be when the leadership says, well, okay, I understand where you're coming from and I see what you're seeing, but we believe that this is actually just cultural and this isn't binding and normative for us, so it's actually okay for all these individuals to be doing these things. I think that's where things get very, that can become quite difficult. Yeah, you you have to decide. You have to decide your level of conviction on this, mm-hmm. um, and that is just probably going to take some time. And while you're figuring that out, you need to obviously make sure you're showing people grace because uh, God's working in them too, Lord willing. And uh, you're just everyone needs to show everybody grace. Mm-hmm. But you may get to the point where maybe not just the fact that they disagree with you. But the way that they've disagreed with you has become such an issue that you're just not comfortable fellowshipping there anymore. Heaven forbid. I don't want that to be the case for anyone. That may be where you land, saying, I I don't think I can continue here, and you go somewhere else. And you maybe don't go to another church just because, you know, they're practicing head covering and hair length instructions. Um, Maybe the, the new church you find doesn't, but their reasoning or their attitude about it is different. Um, so, oh man, it's tough. It is it's a really difficult. tough thing. And, and we actually did a whole episode, uh, about when should we separate based mm. off of how we reason through the chart. So I encourage you guys to go back and listen to that episode. It was episode number 29. That was uh, a pretty popular the, episode. It was a pretty popular episode. Yeah. Very, I, I think it was, it was helpful for, it was helpful just for us, I think, to think through and talk through, yeah. but then helpful for our listeners as well. Uh, when should we separate episode 29, um, was released March 11th of 2021. So go back and listen to that. We started putting episode numbers in front of our episode titles, Yeah, if you didn't notice. Makes it, so you makes can find it helpful to find easily, yes. <laughs> but uh, then you also have the question of, well, what about church leadership when they change their minds? How do they respond to the congregation? Mm-hmm. And you and I have just gone through this in the last year, Yep. and that's what I'm writing about. We did touch on this in the last episode a little bit, um, there's a lot to be said about this. I do not think someone should be forced to cover or uncover or forced to cut hair or grow hair. 
However, I also don't think <laughs> that this issue should just be avoided at all costs. Well, it's too awkward, too weird. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. No, it's in the Bible. God gave it to us. So let's reason together from the scriptures and keep showing grace and don't do anything from bitterness or, or spitefulness or competition or any of that. Or arrogance. Or arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just let's just reason from the scriptures and seek to honor God together by looking at his word together. Mm-hmm. That's the position that everyone needs to have. Um, and again, kind of going back to if you're just a congregant and leadership shuts you down, maybe they don't have that attitude of let's look at the scriptures together and grow together. Maybe you're you're being shut down on this issue just because they don't want to talk about it. And maybe that ends up being your turnoff. And I, I could understand that. Mm-hmm. I hope that's not the case for anybody. But th- it's certainly feasible that, that there are some, I don't know, church elders who would respond that way. Yeah. So the important things to remember in all of these conversations is love and grace as uh, we reason through something that it's countercultural. And I think it's intended to be in some ways. You know, you mentioned in our last episode, Paul doesn't usually take his cues from the culture about how we ought to be living and practicing our lives. And think about today, we, we had one comment uh, somewhere in the midst of all of our replies about how how significant a statement that this could be in a culture today that is constantly confusing uh, the roles of men and women, um, uh, the whole transgender issues and uh, the rise of feminism and the the uh, trying to push down any ideas and any concepts of men having the biblical role of leadership within the home and the wife is to have the biblical role of submission and how huge of a statement that this can be in a positive way to a watching world that, yes, we actually do stand for biblical truth and for biblical values. And, and so this, I think, is a really good way to... Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why it's in the scriptures. So, Well, here's a final challenge I want to submit to you, listener. Some final questions. When it comes to this particular topic of head covering or uncovering and long hair or short hair, depending on what gender you are and how you're instructed, what are we afraid of? <laughs> I, I think this is a very pertinent question. Mm-hmm. What are we afraid of with, with this conversation? I asked, whenever I preached this sermon, I asked the question, are we afraid of looking stupid? And if that's the case, how do we know that we don't look stupid now? (laughs) Especially in the eyes of the angels. That's what the passage says, is that it's a testimony to the angels. Do we look stupid in the angels' eyes? I'm just picturing angels flying over the church and going, those bunch of goobers. What are (laughs) they doing over there? (laughs) Well, or, or here's... Uh, maybe a more core question that strikes at the real issue. Are we afraid of what the covering represents? Mm. Because it does represent something. That's why we're instructed to do it. There's a representation, a a symbolic aspect. And if we're afraid of the truth behind the symbol, that's, that's not good. We need to repent church. So you consider those questions. You mentioned earlier that probably 99% of our audience is complementarian who would already embrace the principles and the concepts of, authority and submission as it is laid out by God's design from the men and the women and how that's that's something we embrace in principle. It's something that is embraced uh, conceptually. But it better not affect the way that I dress. Don't tell me how yeah, to dress. Yeah. I'm an American. And, and then even just how we talk about it, we always or feel European, like we're... Or wh- wherever <laughs> people are listening. Sorry. <laughs> we always, whenever we talk about that issue... 
I know my temptation has been, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells because I never know how, how other people are going to be receiving this or, you know, people are, are they going to be hearing me right? Are they not going to be hearing me right? When I should just be willing to say, hey, this is what the text says. I don't need to be ashamed of that. If, if culture says otherwise, well, that's, that's shame on the culture. That's not shame on the Bible. The Bible says this is, this is how God has designed men and women. This is, this is God's good design for the flourishing of mankind. Mm-hmm. And we're going to throw that aside. And, and so when we are so hesitant, we, we're walking on eggshells around that issue, perhaps it's no wonder that we get a little timid about the conversation surrounding head coverings because we are afraid of announcing to the world, yes, I subscribe to what the Bible says mm-hmm. about authority and submission from the man and the woman as it is defined in the scriptural text. And we should be on guard against that within our own hearts. And perhaps it is time for us to repent as a church, as God's church, and say, no, you know what? We have neglected this practice. This is what God has commanded. Let's embrace it. All right. Well, it's now time for me to eat breakfast. So... Uh, with all that said, uh, thanks for listening. Send in more questions and comments. Send your feedback. Show at dotheology.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. There are a few people over there. And uh, connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, do theology. <sighs> wow. What a marathon. Just tell me why. Yeah. Tell me why ain't no. nothing Look but a hair length. Tell me why. Okay, that's nice to stop. That's really bad.